0: I'm Steve Stein and you're listening to Inside Asia. Increasingly, technology defines our future. Artificial intelligence, big data, robotics, machine learning, blockchain, 3D printing, and much, much more. It all speaks to a world preparing to unlock and accelerate the way we live. Having a vantage point on the world of bleeding edge technology is the privilege of my guest this episode, Steve Leonard. Steve is the founding CEO of SG Innovate, a technology incubator and early-stage investment firm with direct backing from the Singapore government. I first met Steve a decade ago when he served as Asia-Pac President for tech giant EMC. He was then as he is now one of Asia's leading tech insiders. He's seen change firsthand and before moving into his current role, captained EMC through one of its greatest periods of regional growth. Needless to say, Leonard is bullish on Asia's appetite and ability to embrace technological change, which is why in part he made the move from corporate leader to deep tech mentor and early stage investor. I caught up with Steve at the site of SG Innovate in Singapore. He sat on the balcony of the in-house coffee shop looking down on the center's big hall, where tech mavericks take the stage to pitch their ideas and volley feedback.
1: Asia has evolved a huge amount in terms of both the demographics, a lot of amazing young people in a lot of countries, And a big focus by a lot of
0: governments to do really amazing technology and uh, innovative things. Yeah, Steve, I know you as a uh, executive, an Asia Pacific executive, running a very large technology organization. Um, You know that was that was your role for years. I mean, you were moving around the region, you were managing people, uh, big quarterly. You know, results were important Mm -hmm. to you now you're in this incubator environment here in a government-backed kind of deep tech entity why did you make that switch and how does that feel going from big corporate to small incubation startup environment well the exciting
1: thing is i still get to work with amazing people so i loved working with amazing people in a big corporation and doing some pretty cool stuff and at the same time now i get to work with other amazing people doing cool things but from scratch so the exciting thing now is we get to work with people creating technology from zero and we get to work across a wide range of technologies so nano satellites driverless vehicles artificial intelligence so the range is something that's very attractive for us and you are able to dress down steve i noticed as well <laughs> yeah. right yeah so instead of worrying about having uh, a suit and tie to meet uh, our most esteemed customers I'm very fortunate that now I get to meet uh, ministers and ambassadors, but still wearing uh, more casual clothes. Yeah. Everybody prioritizes the person, not so much the, the dress
0: code. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, um, let, tell us a little bit about SG Innovate. I mean, how, how did you arrive here? I, I noticed you're, you're a founder of the organization. Is this something you pitch to the government, or is this just the fact that you're the founding leader of the organization? Uh,
1: well, it's both. I mean, the, the idea was we have so much talent and so much capability capability in Singapore, and we wanted to find a way to help those people express themselves, as in build. So bringing that idea forward, uh, articulating what it might include, what would be the opportunities if we got it right. so we did actually build that and and pitch that to use the expression, and then the opportunity to help lead it from its
0: uh, creation to where we are today. Singapore has been one of the most uh, progressive in terms of governments in the world in terms of seeding uh, new emerging industries, areas, technologies. Um, They've been doing this for years. Uh, You know, different elements of the organization, different uh, of of the country, uh, have have seeded uh, startups or brought in new technologies or tried to get people excited about certain areas what's different and why do you need to specifically focus on deep tech versus just the general category of tech
1: well i think first of all you have to believe in something and our belief is that singapore's core is always uh heavily connected to education primary secondary tertiary singapore is a leader in terms of the technical capabilities by education At the same time, there's a huge amount of commitment to scientific research. So if we have great education and great scientific research, it would follow that we should be building something from it. So we would argue consumer apps and uh, dating apps and food ordering services are great in terms of convenience, but to tackle really tough problems for humanity energy, transportation, healthcare, public safety, then you need what we would refer to as deep tech. It's basically scientific
0: research built through engineers. Is that indicative of the fact that this is a nation state, a small island, uh, and therefore the idea of not having economies of scale to really test and leverage B 2 C, type of capabilities means we might as well focus on the b2b back-end or deep tech side where singapore might be able to lend itself to a greater you know a, a larger region in a different way it could be
1: i think the way that we would look at it is anybody anywhere should play to their strength and so a strength might be the size of the market our strength may be the core assets you bring to that competition. So I don't look at it as, because we don't have a big domestic market, let's focus on deep tech. I would turn it the other way. Because we have a huge multi-decade commitment to education and science, that gives us a great foundation upon which to build. Mm.
0: But What is it about the education system that isn't able to accommodate this? Why do you need something like SG Innovate to then bring out if you will, some of the additional uh, scientific uh, data capabilities of of young graduates coming through the system here.
1: To be honest with you, Steve, I don't see it as anything different than other markets. Our friends here from uh, the UK called Entrepreneur First did the exact same thing when they were working with Cambridge and Oxford and Imperial. So even though the United Kingdom has a multi-century history of engineering excellence and scientific excellence, that doesn't automatically mean that a 24 year old coming out of a PhD program will know how to build a company. Mm. So our view isn't let's improve the science further, it's let's work with people that have a scientific core and need help building a company. Mm. So that's what we focus on, is helping them build a company.
0: Steve, there's competing views out there that in this uh, time and era of machine learning, AI, uh, that we really, um, there is a huge growing demand for data scientists, um, real um, empirical thinkers, Mm -hmm. there's an equal uh, argument that uh, really, no, uh, in many ways AI will take care of much of the work that has to be done. What we really need are lateral thinkers. People can apply, think about the rationale or what the data means and then find great commercial or non-commercial outlets for it. Where do you come down on this? I think the answer is both.
1: I think you need great people that are experts in and around how to gather data, how to annotate data, how to work with data. And you also need philosophers and dreamers and social scientists, because no technology on its own will be adopted unless it meets human needs and and is comfortable for people to work with. So I don't look at it as We only need more engineers or we only need more philosophers. I think all of humanity needs people that are skilled in both areas. We all need to think about the reality that artificial intelligence is an increasing part of our life, that's for sure. And we want it to be so. I would argue that the future of healthcare requires that we use AI better. But it doesn't replace doctors. We're all about working with and enabling doctors.
0: How open is your remit in terms of the types of projects that you uh, identify, embrace, and support? Is it with this, you know, as long as it benefits humanity we're in? Uh, It depends
1: on with whom you speak. Our view would be we're led by amazing people. So by that I mean we don't go out and say, what is the coolest autonomous vehicle company we can find? We say, what are the coolest people we can work with? And if they happen to be working with AV, that would be great. If they happen to be working with AI, that would also be great. So we don't start off with this is our one or two areas that we would like to focus on. Many firms, many funds do that. We're led entirely by who are the coolest people that we can work with, and what can we do to be of help to them? It naturally happens that those group logically into things that include artificial intelligence or driverless vehicle, but it doesn't start off that way. So our mandate is broad. So, so let's
0: unpack coolest people, because I like to hang out with cool people when I'm having a drink or wanna get a conversation, but I might not necessarily wanna go into business with them. How do you define coolest people and why is that an important criteria? I mean, for me personally, and I'll articulate it just
1: as as an individual, I like working with people that make me think about things that I might not have thought about, make me curious about things, make me want to learn more, challenge me to stretch my own understanding, and I enjoy those opportunities. And what I especially enjoy is the chance to do that from morning until night in six or seven different domains. So many times by the end of the day, my head hurts almost literally just because we've covered so many different areas. So for me, cool people would be defined as those that might be working on something that we would all be thinking about 10 years from now. How could we have lived without that? And you could easily pick an example like the smartphone How did we live without that? But what I'd like to do is to remind people that the technology that underpins that is not so much the apps, but some of the underlying technology like the semiconductors and the materials that made what we all take for granted possible. And we think there are people doing things that will be just as transformational upon which other people go on to build technologies down the road. So cool in some ways equals forward-looking. I think there's amazing opportunities to work with people that have ideas that could, and I don't want to overuse the expression, but could change humanity, positively so. But let's come back to real life examples. When you think about the fact that there is a shortage of clean water in some areas, many areas, you think there's a shortage of good food, you think about climate change, you think about transportation in gridlocked urban environments, these are non-trivial problems. The good news is there are lots and lots of men and women, including lots of young men and women, that are thinking about how to make a positive impact. So I would define that as cool.
0: There are data uh, is, is, is almost the new conundrum here. It is it, it the potential to be weaponized or to liberate the world. Uh, it can go both ways so easily. And many times, increasingly, we're being asked to trust in the organizations that are driving some of these initiatives to know that um, they are, in fact, going to be working for the betterment of of man, whatever that may be, environmental, uh, you you name it, right? Um, How do we know and who makes this decision about, you know, which organizations are better equipped to manage data and deliver these uh, AI-infused capabilities? I don't know, Steve. That's a that's a huge
1: topic, and I'm not smart enough to be able to figure out a clear answer for it. I think partly society is self-regulating. You know, if people misuse data, you can take a look, and without naming names, major U.S. tech firms that found, them so, uh, found themselves on the wrong side of the data yeah. uh, debate. You can name them, Steve. It's okay. <laughs> it's out there. Yeah. So those companies found themselves on the wrong side of that debate, right. and society then votes in terms of, do I still want to use that platform? Do I want to have my advertising dollars with that platform? Even employees within firms that have come back out and said to the CEOs, we don't like the fact that our company is involved in that type of work. And then the CEOs have had to back away from some of those contracts. So without being too Pollyanna, I do think that society as a general statement tries to self-regulate and reward or punish as the case may be if people use data wrongly or misuse it but let me just offer one point when you said something can be weaponized i would argue that everything all technology can be thought of as either good or bad you can have antibiotics that have saved countless tens of millions of lives since their introduction in the 20th century You can also have misuse of bacteria and chemicals. You can have misuse of Twitter, and misuse of social media platforms for certain means, but they can also be great at bringing people together in communities. So I always say, yes, anything we want to pursue, someone can come up with a this could be used wrongly argument, but I would argue that it shouldn't stop us from trying to move forward
0: where we can capture good things. This is Inside Asia. My guest is Steve Leonard, former Asia Pacific president of the tech giant EMC
2: and founding CEO of government backed deep tech incubator SG Innovate. More in a moment. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning independent boutique B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. I'm Steve Stein and you're listening to
0: Inside Asia. My guest is Steve Leonard, CEO of SG Innovate, a technology incubator and early stage investment group with backing and support from the Singapore government. Let's get back to the conversation. I asked Steve how the group goes about screening and choosing some of its seed round investments.
1: First of all, we work with some great partners. So our friends at Entrepreneur First, our friends at SMART, which is the Singapore uh, MIT Alliance for Research and Technology here, backboned by MIT out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. We work with NUS and NTU and many others. So we're always introduced to great people by our friends and partners in the ecosystem, including outside of Singapore. When we select, we select entirely on whether we can be doing something useful to that founder or to say it differently to a person that might want to be a founder, because some people think but may not actually take the action. Our goal is if we can be useful, can we help them raise their initial funding? Can we help them with identification of talent, as in who's the second and the third person in the team? Can we help bring them into contact with potential customers? So we'll call up the CEO of a firm, say, please give this young team 10 minutes of your time. We think, based on what we know of you, that you'd like to hear more about them. So we try and do things that are practical. The way we look at it is our only reason for existing is to be useful to
0: the scientist that might want to become an entrepreneur. Okay. Do, do you seed these organizations yourselves? You have your own dedicated fund. Would you be the lead in something like that? Or is it just an arranger and then you make a decision to follow? No, no. We're
1: oftentimes the lead investor. Okay. We have our own fund. We also work with money from other government agencies that we manage in their behalf. So we have our money and their money, to use an expression. We will work with a community of venture capitalists in Singapore and outside to try and line up the investment round for those entrepreneurs. And we help do everything we can to make them investable. By that, we work with them on do they have the right talent profile to be investable. Uh, Have they articulated their message in a compelling way? Is their product ready for a customer to adopt? So is it alpha or beta or is it general release? So we work on all those different spectrums. Again, our core mission comes back to the same mantra. Can we do something to help men and women that would like to build a technical or science-based company?
0: And if we can, we'll do everything we can to be useful to them. Okay, all right. For many years, Singapore, as we were just discussing earlier, um, have attempted to seed these types of initiatives. Um, but, but not always as efficient as they might be, requiring lots of data, lots of information, uh, long lead times in terms of making decisions to fund or not to fund. It created a lot of frustration among the startup community here who were held f- for the promise and possibility of receiving funding, but then you know decided it's just not moving fast enough or ultimately they'd re- reject them. Do you feel that in this case that they've sorted through and learned from those mistakes in the past and now it's a little more efficient in terms of how funding is deployed and so? and to, in support of these startups? I think the answer is yes,
1: but. Um, the first thing is, are there learnings? Yes. Uh, have there been modifications to the programs in an effort to make them better? The answer is also yes. But at the same time, and I know this now having been in government for coming up on six years, that we are custodians for citizens' money. And so the important thing is to not confuse prudence and caution with being uh, bureaucratic or or too slow. So there's the balance between wanting to be nimble and fast and market responsive and commercial and yet recognize that we don't want to be careless or misuse in any way uh, taxpayers' money. So, I always thought of it as, gosh, government is slow and hard to work with when I was on the outside. Now on the inside, I have a better understanding of the importance for prudence and and thought. But can we improve the process?
0: Yes, and we have. And we're always open to market feedback. Okay. Uh, You know, uh, China has its Made in China 2025. They've got a, you know, by 2030, want to be the leading AI developer in the world, multi-billion dollar initiatives behind this. These are the industrial policies that will drive China into the 21st century. Uh, What's Singapore's take on that? What is its plan and how does it uh, intend to remain relevant in the tech space going forward? Well, that's back to why we think deep
1: tech is so important. So everything that we do is because we believe we have capabilities in Singapore that we want to build upon. It's not a response to, meaning we didn't launch this saying, gee, China has a a made in China plan, what's ours? We want to do the right thing. It's sort of using a golf comparison. You play the course, you don't play the other competitors. And so we want to think about what we can do to be the best that we can be. Now, Singapore has niche capabilities. We're not going to beat a China or an India or an Israel because there are different skills in each of these markets. What's important is to do what we can to be a great contributor to the bigger narrative. For example, Singapore is a world leader in research around natural language processing, which is one of the key dimensions around AI. How can we better bring that into market opportunity? how can we capitalize on the computer vision work that's occurring here so government announced singapore government announced a few years ago ai singapore or aisg now and that's a collection of great researchers funding uh, corporate relationships all working to try and build more with the capabilities singapore has around ai but not in isolation that would be with opportunities outside of Singapore. So anything like AI is thought of, in my opinion, as a team sport, not as we win, you
0: lose. Mm. Uh, You know, there's always talk of uh, public-private partnerships in order to uh, propel some of these uh, startups forward and and companies oftentimes come in with uh, more with technologies and contributions or discounted prices on platforms or software or whatever do you feel that corporations should be playing more of a direct investment role in something like this in Singapore is it happening or is it just faded a bit because there's pressures on these companies to stick to their knitting and focus on those returns and that's good enough for now
1: I mean the tough part having lived inside a corporation and run on a treadmill every 90 days for a Wall Street number is, uh, I understand that world well. The challenge I think is corporations are built for executing to a defined plan and everybody sits around and says this is what we need to accomplish over the next four quarters or eight quarters. Uh, By definition entrepreneurship is what's going to happen tomorrow and next week and so bringing those two universes together is not easy. Yes, corporations, in my opinion, should always be doing more. And the chance for a corporation to work in a meaningful way with a startup is not uh, coming in to people like us and saying, Show us a couple of cool startups. It's what are the problems corporations could be solving if they used their resources, their data, their investment funds, their people in a different way? And then how could they team up with a few small early stage companies to make a difference in their trajectory. What we find is corporations do this thing of the boss wants us to be innovative, can you show me a couple of cool companies and then inevitably they'll say how many customers do they have, Uh, do they already have a product, which is basically procurement. So we see a huge opportunity and we'd love to work with frankly those few that get it.
0: I like how you put it, it's, you know, how are these companies relevant to the, to, to the startups? Because sometimes they're, they're looking at it from the other way. The corporate said, why are these startups relevant for us? But, um, and I, when I was at IBM in the late 1990s, I mean, we were all trying to be, you know, party to that. How do we, how are we relevant for the startups? How can we contribute? And just like you've described, it would ultimately fall over because we could not ever get our pricing right to really support them in a meaningful way. And I suspect that's still the case. It is still the case, and
1: what happens is corporations, understandably, like to wait until these really early stage companies have a bit of mileage, have a bit of traction, and my point to the corporates is always, that's okay, but your opportunity to meaningfully shape them and to play an important role in their evolution will also evolve, meaning your, your fingerprints will be less Strongly on these startups, if you wait until you've seen them for a few years. Now, I get the idea that it's less risky, but it's also less, I would argue, rewarding. And so when Google bought DeepMind, it was early enough in DeepMind's journey that now Google has been able to play an important role in bringing a lot of different assets to bear. If they'd waited until you know, DeepMind was already a multi billion dollar company, it would have been a great acquisition. But I would argue that Google's influence and benefit, frankly, from
0: that, just as much as DeepMind has benefited, would have been different. Steve, you drank the Kool-Aid, you're on this side now, you're working with startups, um, but you are an executive of of repute. Um, When you turn around and speak with, you know, heads of the region for other tech companies, um, can, can they hear you with different ears because they know you've been on both sides and do they respond differently? Or again, is it just a cultural difference that's going to create that everlasting divide? Yeah, the answer is uh, a bit
1: of both, I'm sure. I I always, when I speak to corporates, uh, there's always kind of the laugh, the, the nervous giggle when I talk about corporates executing, not experimenting, needing to make the quarter, not worrying about what happens too far into the future. And other executives sort of giggle and nod knowingly because I know that that's what they're facing and they know that I know. But at the same time, Uh, it's hard for them to break out and normally people come up to me after one of these sorts of chats and say I only wish that my corporation would and then dot 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 so I think everybody does understand but I also appreciate the fact that shareholders expect consistency and predictability shareholders don't reward experimentation gone wrong Mm -hmm. so as much as CEOs love to talk about an innovative culture they have to make the quarter and delivering top line and bottom line and market share takes focus. And experimenting and trying things on doesn't always fit well with that. The only companies that seem to be able to stride that balance would be those that the market rewards. NVIDIA, for example, had a tremendous year, a year or two ago, as their experimentation started to really pay off. And then you couldn't show up at an event without NVIDIA being there as an AI leader. But they were something different a few years ago. Their experimentation paid off, but then it just as quickly rotates to, what are you gonna do for me next quarter? And then NVIDIA's back in the box of having to execute against a plan. And you could fill in any
0: company's name. It's nothing against NVIDIA. It's just an example. No, it's a great example, and does, I think it speaks to the future of corporations and the fact that maybe something in terms of the incentive systems and the way that Wall Street engages, I, I understand the almighty profit motive and the share price returns, but 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 uh, at some point, you know, these examples you would hope start to take hold. And organizations say, you know, um, as a CEO, I'm gonna go and, and really drive a different approach and I may be punished for it, I may not. I don't think it even matters because if you look at the, uh, the tenure periods for CEOs, CFOs, and others, it's shrinking from nine and seven years down to three and four years and you're seeing this, this, this revolving door of chief executives who say they wanna be innovative but never get in there long enough to be able to do something about it. Are you concerned about that as this guy who was former corporate? I mean, honestly, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting to me to watch everyone says you should be doing this but nobody really does it. Why is that? Well, I think it's just that shareholders don't reward people. I mean, Ah.
1: CEOs are incented, boards are incented to try and do the things that drive share price. And if you talk about compensation, the innovative model is to link LTI or long term incentives to share price returns. Well, Mm -hmm. people don't drive up share prices based on how many R&D dollars you invest in new and quirky things. It's did those monetize. Did that R&D monetize in a new product line that's beating the competition? Mm. And if the answer is that's what drives share price, then, I mean, take a look at any of the examples. Tesla, you know, amazing, innovative people are betting on what it could be. And then it comes down to the cold, hard facts. How many did you build this quarter of Tesla 3? And if the answer is not as many as you wanted, the stock gets crushed. So I, I think it's not surprising that's why more and more companies that go from startup to big entity are staying private longer I mean I think the idea that you get your cake and eat it too you get private sector money and you don't get the hot glare of the Wall Street analyst. allows companies to go on and do something for a much longer time. Nobody's rushing to the public markets in the way that
0: they work. Yeah, it's, a, it's a excellent, Steve, and it's a broader conversation and maybe for another time. But before I let you get back to incubating, which is what, what I suppose you're, you are doing here, tell us, if you would, about a couple uh, examples of projects here that are particularly exciting to you. Uh, the things that we really love first of all
1: we love all of our children equally as any parent would say but we think about things but is that true steve it is true yeah. it is true because we never know we love people right yeah. and and the idea that somebody's current mission may or may not pan out in the way that they'd want it doesn't mean that they stopped being an amazing person and the great secret as you'll know and others will know about silicon valley is that you learn and you rotate and you come back stronger than ever so there isn't in our books Uh, this team worked out, or they didn't, and off they go. It's, we invest in people. If this current assignment or project that they're pursuing doesn't work out, we still love them and they'll come back in a new life. But the the businesses that we're excited about especially include things we think are both important economically and important socially. Artificial intelligence and healthcare, back to the earlier point, is both inevitable and I would argue critical to accelerate. When we think about how we can get more people to have accurate diagnosis of things that intercepted early could save lives. So early detection of tumors and lesions and anomalies. Computer vision can do that at scale. Uh, Not because radiologists can't, but because there's only a certain number of radiologists. Then you say, how do I do things that don't require million-dollar MRI and CT machines? Can I use a less expensive technology like ultrasound and get a decent image that allows me to view things? So we're working with teams right now that are doing just that, working with computer vision, working with natural language processing, with machine learning to improve healthcare outcomes. And we think that's going to be so exciting and we're backing a number of teams.
0: How would the Siemens, the Philips of the world look at this, who make uh, billions of dollars off uh, the sale of their MRIs?
1: They're working with us. So we've had conversations with all of those and, and a number of people that you didn't mention because they're also saying, A, we know it's important, B, we're not sure how to play, and C, there could be somebody out there that would be a great acquisition or competitor, as the case might be. So all of those multinationals want to be involved. The challenge is... A big multinational that has a lot of shareholder expectations trying to work with a five person no name startup is a tough combination to put together. And that's the great challenge for all of us is to get those two entities, the biggest and the smallest, to be in the same room and to find
0: common ground. How much do you do as an incubator to get involved in that process or is it your job simply to bring the parties together and let them make magic?
1: Uh, Well, we always hope that if they learn enough about each other, then there will be something special. But we do a lot of things to try and help that process. So just putting a bunch of logs in a pile doesn't make a fire. So we have to then think about what's the right way to get a spark going? How do we try and fan the flames long enough? How do we put a bit of log on top of what's a small flame to make it bigger? So we do a lot of intervention, but we can't make something happen that isn't destined to happen.
0: How are you judged in the role that you play here? What are your KPIs? Is it how many of these groups you get through the pipeline and out into the market? Is it uh, for the betterment of the social good in Singapore? Is it uh, the idea that you simply have facilitated conversations? How are you viewed based on the initiatives that are set forward? Uh, well, there's a bunch of
1: different answers because I have a bunch of different uh, expectations placed on SG Innovate. Our board on the time of the time of day and which day. Well, our board is made up of both government, senior government officials and senior private market leaders, so they have different views of what we should be doing. But at the same time, my metric is pretty basic, and that is, have we been useful to a scientist that wants to be an entrepreneur and wants to build a company? If that company is invested in by others, if their product is purchased by others and it's economically viable, as in anybody can build a business and sell for $1 what takes $2 to build. If we can help them build an economically viable company, then we'll have done our job. So that's my metric, and then other people will have metrics that associate sort of perimeter things that contribute to that, but I don't think there's anything as acid test like as can we get a
0: company off the ground that's likely to survive Steve last question um... when you look at the innovations and the in technology in Asia uh, vis-a-vis the West are there what are your hopes and expectations for this part of the world? I mean, there's been a lot said about China on this subject, you know, that they've they're just copiers, they're not innovators, but we know that's not true. We know that they're turning the corner and some extraordinary things are beginning to happen and some amazing companies are being birthed uh, from, you know, core Chinese innovation. What do you see happening? And is this politically feel like a threat to the West? Is that why there's so much contraction? Or uh, do you feel like there are other issues in play here? Uh, I've got a whole bunch
1: of thoughts on this, and I'm sure not enough time for us to to thrash through them all. But in no particular order, having seen China up close for the last 20 years, I would argue that I am both uh, respectful of and fearful of China, and not fearful in a negative, malicious sense, fearful as in a competitive uh, force with which to be reckoned. Number two is I think the West, if we use the expression, doesn't get the concept of face. And so the fact that China has not been treated uh, in the way that they would feel is appropriate or respectful for some amount of time, then now it's sort of the young scrawny teenager that grows up to be, you know, a high performance athlete. And I think that the West feels that if it grabs the jersey of the athlete and sort of tries to slow them down, that that's a good strategy, as opposed to the West uh, training harder and becoming more fit and and competing in that sense. You don't stop the guy in front of you from winning the 100-meter dash by grabbing his jersey, uh, which is where I think sometimes some of the conversation goes in the West. From my perspective, I think China is a huge repository of talent. There is a huge government focus on being top of the table, whether it's robotics or artificial intelligence another. other. They're using data powerfully, uh, but I don't look at that as uh, malicious in the sense that I think there's a great pride amongst Chinese citizens that China is really a force in AI. And I think there's an acceptance of that. Uh, and I think that there's huge amounts of investment capital. Now, you can argue... Is the government more involved than it should be or whatnot? I I think that's a different discussion, as I think every government is involved naturally in what happens in its economy. I think the bigger point is how can we work with China and other countries so that things that are going to happen either way, such as artificial intelligence, can be thought of as a social norm as opposed to... If we don't we don't win, so to speak, by pretending they're not advancing. We don't win by pretending we can slow them down. I think what we do is say, exciting. How can we best work with these technologies together? Because what I'm a big believer: what happens to one happens to many. Uh, climate change in China affects everybody else. Uh, AI development in China affects everybody else. So I'd love to see how we can be more cooperative, collaborative. That's where I think St- Singapore has a great strength. By the way. I think Singapore has long understood that working with China is the right strategy and I think the investments made by Lee Kuan Yew and others decades ago in relationships continue to put Singapore in a great position and we have a lot of great Chinese researchers here and Chinese investors here. So we look at that as a great strength for Singapore. The West will pretend that China can be controlled or managed, uh, I think, at its uh, loss. I think that will be a loss for the West, and I hope we collectively get
0: that collaboration is better. That was the voice of Steve Leonard, founding CEO of SG Innovate, a Singapore-backed deep tech incubator and early-stage investment firm. Our conversation left me pondering a few things, and so it is in this portion of the program that I offer up the Asia Insider Minute, my attempt to cull from the conversation you've just heard and hone in on some of the key themes. I might even throw in a few additional thoughts of my own, so here it goes. Let's think deep for a moment, deep tech that is. What does it really mean, and is this new tech wave actually any different from any other tech phase that came before it? You might say we've arrived at a new technological threshold where the combination of big data, advanced computing power, and sophisticated algorithms converge to challenge the processing power of the human brain. Get it right and we enter an innovation renaissance like nothing we've ever seen. Get it wrong and this kind of computing power, if mistreated, could unleash untold disaster. It's good to be cautious, maybe even cynical, Companies like to spin a big story, and from enterprise giants down to the purveyors of mobile apps, I've never met a tech vendor unprepared to tell a good tale, particularly if there's money involved. I should know. I was once IBM's head of e-business marketing for Asia. I guess consumers are partly to blame as well. The next big thing to telling a good story is listening to one, and these days the stories are getting bigger and more futuristic than ever before. A cyborg in every home, thought-activated shopping, infinite synthetic brain power, 3D replacement body parts. Dream it, and so it will be. How different is this, really? The technological breakthroughs in my lifetime have been nothing short of astounding, but industrial-strength tech innovation reaches back nearly 300 years. Mechanical production in the mid-18th century, mass production 100 years later, computing in the 1970s, and now the big kahuna of tech breakthroughs, the one that takes the processing power of the human brain and says, we can do it better. All hail the fourth industrial revolution. Like all revolutions, there'll be winners and losers, and this is where the debate gets really interesting. Technology has this funny way of ferreting out polar opposite views. People tend to come down hard on one side or the other. It's either the best thing that ever happened to humanity, or it's a source of our ultimate downfall. In previous industrial revolutions, for every job lost to a machine, two or more were created. But this time, say pundits, there's a difference. According to the acclaimed historian and best-selling author Yuval Noah Harari, humans have two types of abilities, physical and cognitive. For centuries, with every innovation, human cognitive skills complemented growth in automation. But now, he says, the game has changed. As machines start to surpass humans in the realm of cognition, what's left for humans? Harari points to a future where billions are made redundant, leading to the creation of what he calls a massive new, and I quote, useless class, unquote. Optimists see things differently, of course. Take artificial intelligence and in medicine, for instance. No matter how good a doctor might be, there's simply no way any one human can stay up to date on all the latest medical advances. But imagine a human doctor paired with a constantly updated natural language AI, and add in a bit of AI-enabled diagnostic technology. Layer in some human compassion and interpersonal EQ, and you have a pretty compelling picture of what the future of medicine might look like. Get the economics right, and refined algorithms could reverse the astronomical rise in healthcare costs, and that, in and of itself, could save billions of lives at a fraction of today's costs. Take virtually any industry for that matter and apply the theoretical attributes of AI and machine learning and the possibilities are boundless. This positive vision is why you see such rabid enthusiasm for deep tech in many quarters. Governments see cost savings, corporations see profits. Consumers, meanwhile, see a futuristic world of greater convenience bundled with happier and healthier lives. Not to burst this utopian bubble, but there's the other possibility of weaponized AI and robots run amok. Steve Leonard, as any good corporate leader would, vests his hopes for the future in the consuming public. People, he says, will decide through marketplace interactions whether they want certain innovations or not. That could be. Certainly, there's truth to the fact that if people buy something, it's as clear as any indication that they actually want it. But in the acquiring, will consumers be fully aware of the possible repercussions? For instance, by opting into what's easy, convenient, or entertaining in the short term, will we one day wake up to realize that we've sacrificed a product or an idea that might have been more sustaining and even essential in the long run? At the end of the day, will deep tech and its many consumable offspring fall subject to a higher order where in the interest of the greater good, access is granted or denied in accordance with a new set of social sanctions? That's where government comes in. In fact, as the new wave of innovation further empowers the individual and diminishes the role of traditional institutions, governments need to have some say in what happens and what doesn't. What will it mean, for instance, when blockchain empowers a cryptocurrency revolution that undermines a nation's principal medium of exchange? One choice is to intervene and intercept. Another choice is to get involved and invest. That appears to be Singapore's choice, which is why Steve Leonard and his colleagues at SG Innovate are driving an agenda to prioritize deep tech solutions geared for the public good. At least that's the plan. To what degree should governments inject themselves into our deep tech future? We want to know what you think. Leave us a comment, download the episode, or better yet, reach us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. We promise to respond responsibly. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying coming from the outside on Inside
2: Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and bestselling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.